Hi, this is Jesse Colin Young from the Youngbloods and our song Get Together. You are listening to the Robert Miller podcast, Follow Your Dream. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. It is my great pleasure to have as my guest today, Richie Fure, who basically created the country rock genre. He was a founding member of three supergroups, Buffalo Springfield with Steve Stills and Neil Young, Poco with Jim Messina, and the Souther Hillman Fure Band with J.D. Souther and Chris Hillman. In my humble opinion, if it wasn't for Richie Fure, there might not have been the Eagles or Jackson Brown or Linda Ronstadt or so many others. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Richie and I are going to do what I call a song fest. We're going to play some of his great songs and we're going to talk about them. You'll get the backstories and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end of each episode. And I always try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest or the subject matter. And in this instance, I've chosen the song that I wrote called Stockbridge Fanfare. It's from the East Side Sessions album that I did with my band Project Grand Slam, and we released it just before the pandemic closed the world down. Why did I choose this song? Well, as I said, Richie, to me, is the king of country rock. And Stockbridge Fanfare is my country rock song about the town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, one of my favorite places in the entire world. So, Richie Fure, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Robert, I'm humbled by just listening to you introduce it all, man. It's pretty cool. Hey, I will tell you, it's Souther, J.D. Souther. Oh, I screwed up, huh? That's all right. You're good, man. I mean, listen, we made some shirts up a while back, and it had Souther Hillman Fure on the shirt. So, <laughs> so you're not alone, man. You're I'm you're not right the only on one that screwed up. All right, I like that. All right. I got to start off with you with a confession, and that is I adored Buffalo Springfield, okay? You guys came out in the mid-60s. That was the era when I came of age musically. My high school band, you know, covered all your songs, and I loved the album. I wore out the grooves. I mean, for, <laughs> for young younger people, they probably don't even know what I'm saying, but we used to have vinyl back then, and we put the needle on, and I wore out the grooves. And one of the coolest things about the band, okay, I always thought was your name, okay? Now, I grew up in New York City, and when I was growing up, they were putting in sewer lines and things like that in the streets all the time. And sure enough, I go in there one day, and I see that there's a big excavation machine, and it's called Buffalo Springfield. And I said, <laughs> now I got it. Now I know where they got that name from. <laughs> Whose idea was that? That was so brilliant. 
You know, we saw the we saw one of the the steamrollers working on Fountain Boulevard or Fountain Avenue in Los Angeles, and 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 we kind of like lifted a sign off of off of the tractor and came into a friend's house, put it up on the fireplace, and looked at it. And said, you know what? That looks like a good name for a band, and it was so cool. I got a letter from them years ago that said, you know, after the company had really gone to Harvester International and, and even disbanded a little bit, but they said, hey, so good to see the name out there have fun with it and just enjoy and so it was so cool that nice i was wondering whether they were going to ask you for royalties or something like that but they were just cool about the whole thing huh they were more than cool and the thing also that i didn't know was that the springfield was actually nine miles from my hometown in yellow oh, wow. springs ohio it was like nine mil springfield was nine miles up the road See, those little things in life that are just yeah. unbelievable. That's great. Okay, but I want to go back a little bit further because I was reading somewhere that you met Stephen Stills at the Cafe Agogo in New York City. Is that right? You were, you guys were singers for the Agogo or was this in L.A.? Where was it? Well, when this little band got put together, it was, you know, it was a, like a serendipity singer. Again, I don't know if your audience is going to know what it means by a nine-piece group serendipity singer, back porch majority, whatever. But I met Stephen in a little club called The Four Winds, which was on West 3rd Street. And uh, we were back there passing the basket, as people did back in those days, as the audiences were being turned over in the little folk clubs. And then this guy, Eddie Miller, came along and put together the group that had nine of us, you know, the seven guys and the two girls. And and uh, we became the house band at the Cafe Agogo, which was across the street from the bitter end and all. Uh, and that's how we picked up the name, the Agogo Singers. You know, I've had several other musicians on the show that were in the village at that time. Okay. It must have been an unbelievable scene. Okay. Because everybody was there from Dylan to I had, you know, Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul and Mary. He was there. It must have been such a scene, huh? Yeah, those guys who you just mentioned, Bob Dylan and Peter Yarrow. Yeah, they, they were um, they were just a little bit before us. We were really on the tail end of when 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 like folk music and then groups like the Love and Spoonful were starting to come along. So I was there right at the tail end. So I didn't see Bob walking along the streets there, Bleecker Street or whatever, or or Peter Yarrow. But uh, it, it was just the tail end of that. It was still a great era. It was still a, a neat, um, how do I want to say it? Just a group of people that were still there, you know, thinking that, hey, this is this is where it's at right now, playing your music here in the village. That's right. You know, the bitter end is still around. So many of the other clubs, of course, are gone at this point. But the village was the focal point of so much music back in the 60s. Yeah. Yep. It was a it was it was it was it was exciting. It was like so big for me to come to New York City from a little town of like twenty five hundred people in Ohio. You know, I mean, it was it was crazy, but it was something I had to do. I, I was pursuing my dream at the time. <laughs> there you go. Love it. OK, so tell me, how did you form Buffalo Springfield? OK, because I got to hear that story. Well, when uh, when the Agogo singers broke up. Um, the short story is Stephen went to California and I went up to Connecticut to work at Pratt & Whitney Aircraft handing out tools in the tool crib. And a friend of mine who lived across the street from me on Thompson Street in New York, he came up to visit me one day and he had this album in his hand and it was The Birds' first record. The guy was Graham Parsons. 
And uh, he said, you got to hear this record. I said, you, you know, it, it's something like we've never heard before. And we hadn't, we hadn't heard, you know, people, electric guitars playing Bob Dylan music and this and that and the other. And I said, man, I got to get out of here and get a hold of Stephen. And so I got a hold of him and went out to California. And uh, he said, come on out, man. I got a band together. All I need is another singer. Well, when I got out there, we had the singer, but we didn't have the band. <laughs> so, <laughs> But you know what? The timing was perfect because Stephen and I learned how to sing together. We learned how to phrase together. We learned how to harmonize together in this little apartment there on Fountain Avenue and, uh, and all. But along the way, both of us had met Neil at one time or another. And so the story that you've probably heard about the Sunset Strip stopping in traffic, and there was this hearse from Ontario with Neil and Bruce, it's true. I don't know what we were doing on Sunset Boulevard. I know Neil was leaving town. He had been in town for about maybe two or three weeks looking for Stephen, who he had really made friends with up in Canada. Stephen worked his way to California and couldn't find him. And he was on his way to San Francisco. And there we were stopped in a traffic jam on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. And that was the beginning of Buffalo Springfield. Wow. And then you had the other guys in the group at that time, or did you bring them in afterwards? Well, it was, uh, uh, Neil had Bruce with him okay. and Stephen and I, so there were four and all we needed was a drummer and Chris Hillman and, and uh, David Crosby helped us, uh, you know, uh, the, the Dillards were playing, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Dillards, the, the bluegrass band, they had Dewey Martin playing drums with them and decided, yeah, this is a little too heavy right now, so we're just going to go back to more of, a, of an acoustic sound. So when Dewey was looking for a job, it was Chris Hillman and David Crosby that suggested that we try Dewey out. And we tried Dewey out, and that was the beginning of the band right there. Fantastic story. Okay, you know, I want to get to that first album because, again, if I had that list of, you know, Desert Island discs, I would probably be putting the first Buffalo Springfield album on that list because wow. it was just a spectacular album. It was a different sound. The songs were great. And I learned afterwards, I didn't know at the time, that you sang a couple of Neil's songs. I guess he didn't feel comfortable enough at that time to be the singer. Am I right? Well, you know, there's all kinds of stories that are going around. And like Stephen said, come on out to L.A. All I need is another singer. I mean, that was definitely my instruments, mainly my voice. And I, I don't know if they if people felt that, you know, Neil's voice was just a little eccentric to be, you know, on this record or whatever. So I ended up singing three of Neil's songs and actually put them together in a medley that I played for a long time in my live uh, shows that I did. Nowadays, Clancy can't even sing. Flying on the ground is wrong. And do I have to come right out and say it? I, I sang those three songs. Yep, I know you did. I'll tell you right now, Robert, I really believe that when Buffalo Springfield released that album, they released the wrong single. They shouldn't have released Nowadays Clancy Can't Even Sing. I think it was. I that mean, was I, the first single, right? I loved the song. Right. Uh, Neil taught it to me actually in New York when I had met him previously to our uh, getting together in California. But uh, I think if they would have released his other song, Do I Have to Come Right Out and Say It, it might have been another, his a different historical uh, trip that the Buffalo Springfield made. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. Live at Steel Stacks is the new five-song EP by my band, Project Grand Slam. It absolutely captures the band at the top of our game. Musicians and reviewers alike have praised the recording, saying things like captivating music. 
Project Grand Slam burns down the house. Virtuoso musicians and such a great band. You can stream live at Steel Stacks on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any of the other streaming platforms. And you can download it from the PGS store. The links are all in the show notes to this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so yet. You can do so and you can listen to our 100 plus episodes just by going to our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. So join me each episode as we go on a world tour to my listeners in 200 countries. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. Well, you know what? You've done a great job of kind of setting this up for me because let's play a little bit of uh, Nowadays Clancy, Can't Even Sing, which was that first single by the band. And it's it's a different kind of song. It's not like mainstream pop, okay? It's got time changes in it as well. Tell us a little bit about your impressions of that song here, you know, so many years later. Well, when I heard the song from Neil back then, it like, you know, it really, it was like, wow, I've never heard anything like this. This is really cool. You're talking about the time signatures and, and Neil kind of told a story. I'm not real sure of the exact story. I think it was a, a kid that went a to guy high named Clancy, right? Yeah. Went to high school with him or he knew from high school and, and all, but I, I, I loved the song. Uh, so don't get me wrong on that, but I just don't think it was the kind of song that was as accessible as right. do I have to come right out and say it for a commercial single that was going to be played on AM radio. Yeah. hundred percent. I agree with you about that, but let's play. Do I have to come right out and say it as well right now? Cause you know, as you said, the, the the three songs that you sang of Neil's, they all kind of went together and they were all on this first album. And, and this song, I agree with you. It was, it was more commercial. It was more melodic in a sense. It didn't have those time changes that would probably throw teenagers off at that time. Do I have to come right out and say it? Tell you that you look so fine. Do I have to come right out and ask you to be mine? If it was a game, I could play it Trying to make it, but I'm losing time I gotta bring you in, you're overworking my mind So again, give me, give me your impressions about that song now. now Do I have to come right out and say it? Oh, yeah. well, you know, in, in simple terms, it was a love song you know, and, and th those are so much easier to grasp onto than having to think about this whole list of lyrics, you know, that, that were telling another story about a guy that went he went to high school with or something. So uh, that, that's what, um, you know, that's what 
I see do have to come right out and say it is just a, a love song that people could be more attracted to and 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 grasp onto. But melodically, I mean, it, it was just it, it just seemed more like an AM song to me. Looking back on it in in retrospect. No, I was surprised because normally the record labels are very, very insistent that the songs that come out as the singles are the most popular ones, the ones that are going to grab the AM radio mm -hmm. at that time. But they went with the one that was kind of the oddball songs, if you will. Yeah. And who's going to argue with Ahmed Erdogan? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Nobody's going to argue with him. All right. But, you know, of course, for what it's worth, became kind of the signature song that came out of that early age and it's so interesting to me because the song became kind of an anti-war, anti-protest song. And yet, if I understood correctly, Stephen wrote that song for, you know, some kind of a local problem that was happening in, in L.A. or San Francisco. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Can you tell that story? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, there was a there was a club right at the intersection of uh, Sunset Boulevard, Laurel Canyon Boulevard, and and uh, and La Cienega called Pandora's Box, and it's where kids met. You know, they came there to have fun and and hear music and do things. And the police felt that it was uh, a hazard to that to that intersection in traffic and they wanted to shut the club down. And so as Stephen was coming down Sunset Boulevard one day, he saw all this going, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear, you know? And then he saw the police and this and that and the other. And, and he wrote the song uh, just like that almost. I think he wrote it almost on the spot, which is really cool. I, when I hear people that write songs like that just on the spot pretty much amazes me as I have to work hard at, my, uh, at writing my songs. But th the interesting story a backstory on that also is that um, Ahmed Erdogan had come to Los Angeles because the record, the first album had not really been as successful out of the box as they thought it was going to be. And they were looking for new songs for a second record. And Neil played some songs. I played some songs. I actually played some songs for the second album. And then as we're closing up, and Stephen did too, and as we're closing up our guitar boxes and you know putting our guitars away and all, Stephen said, oh, I have another one for what it's worth. Right, that's how the name came, right? I think that's it, yeah. Because you won't find the name in the song. <laughs> I always love that, okay? I always love that. And, you know, speaking of writing these songs on the spot, I, I remember the story about Neil years later with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young writing Ohio, his protest song about the shootings yeah. at Kent right. State. I mean, he went off into the woods. He came back an hour later. He had the song all worked out, something like that. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> He's got to write songs like that. You know, I mean, I can labor at songs for years. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. All right. So tell us, you know, the, the, the era of Buffalo Springfield was that mid sixties thing, but you only had a, you know, two or three albums. What was the arc of the band and why did the band finally break up? You know, it's hard to keep a band together when there's nine people in and out of it in two years. 
and we were like one step forward and two steps back. You know, the the band, interestingly enough, was a it was more of a Canadian band than it was an American band. Everyone was Canadian except Stephen and me. But um, you know, I think two two other things, Robert, you know, that played into it. Bruce was really having trouble, you know, with. Um, uh, well, let's put it this way: with with marijuana and drugs and this and that at the other end at that at that time, and I'm not sure that Neil ever really wanted to be in a band. I always think he wanted to be a solo artist, which he went out and proved himself to be. But I mean, we were we were constantly replacing one of those two guys with another guy over two years, and so we just couldn't get we couldn't get the momentum going. So that's that's my perspective. All right, but listen, you didn't sit around and mope. You went out and you formed Poco, okay? Yeah. One of the great bands of that era again. I mean, you, you hit the lottery twice. Tell us about Poco. <laughs> well, Jimmy Messina was number nine in Buffalo Springfield, and he played the last <laughs> couple of tours uh, with us. He was also an engineer that did some of our engineering in the, in the studio for Buffalo Springfield, and we became good friends. And, you know, I always said, as long as Stephen was in Buffalo Springfield, I would be in the band. You know, I mean, that was it was it was a given. I, I uh, Buffalo Springfield, from my perspective, was Stevens band. He was the heart and soul of Buffalo Springfield. And we were friends from New York. And, and I just said, I'll be there until Stephen decides it's time to go. And, and when he decided it was time to go, then Jimmy and I just said, hey, you know what? Let's just let's just pick up the pieces and move on. And that's what we did with picking up the pieces. We we had this vision. We wanted to cross, you know, what was happening in, in the country world with the rock and roll world. It was something that maybe a couple other bands were doing at the same time. I mean, the birds kind of had a sweetheart as uh, sweetheart of the rodeo. Of the rodeo, yeah. And Graham Parsons, uh, you know, with the Flying Burrito Brothers. But I think if you even listen to Chris, uh, who was in the Flying Burrito, Burrito Brothers, he would tell you, we weren't a country rock band. We were a country band. We were playing in every dive in Los Angeles, <laughs> country dive that you can imagine. But anyway, Graham's given a lot of credit for, you know, helping start that genre of music too. But Poco was definitely a country rock band. And I think, you know, from my perspective, it was more of, of the Bakersfield sound with um, Buck Owens and Don Rich and, and guys up there than it was actually from Nashville. But um, it, it was something that I, I don't know. It was just something that was ingrained in me. And it was a vision that I had. Let's cross this music. Some of my influences was Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent and Carl Perkins and the guys that were playing rockabilly, Buddy Holly, Ricky Nelson. You know, those guys, it was those were the kind of um, bands that were influencing me. And I was trying to bring that in to what Poco was all about. You know, it sounds so simple and logical and straightforward now, but back then it was kind of revolutionary that, like you said, you crossed rock with country and created this genre. Yeah. And uh, of course it worked and it, it led to so much other music. I mean, it's just spectacular in that regard. You would have been a good radio disc jockey because you led into one of your songs really well. Let's talk about picking up the pieces. We're playing a little bit of that now. Well, there's just a little bit of magic in the country. Music 
tell me a little bit about that situation. Well, as the thought was coming when I when I was writing it from a lyrical standpoint, it, it was saying exactly what we wanted to do. We wanted to cross over because at that time I even, I wrote a song not long ago called "We Were the Dreamers" and it said, you know, back then, you know, redneck and hippies wouldn't be on the same stage together. But what we were trying to do was show them, hey man, this is just a music world, and what we want to do is just sit on that sit on that porch and play music with you, and you'll see that I'm just a lot like you, you know because there was definitely a, a gap, you know, between what was happening, let's say, in, in, in the Nashville era at that time and rock and roll. I mean, people, rednecks and hippies didn't get along. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, you made it all work together. Picking Up the Pieces was a great song. And then you had a, the next one, A Good Feeling to Know. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I've, I've always been known, I think, more or less as a as a love songwriter. And my wife and I have been married for 55 years. Good for you. And uh, so we, we've got a, a good history. It wasn't always blue skies, green lights and pops down weather. We did have our issues, as everybody does. But Good Feeling to Know, man, was just a, a heartfelt song. You know that, boy, when you're on the road. You can get exhausted, you can get distracted, you can get caught up in things that you shouldn't get caught up in maybe, you know, but boy, it sure is a good feeling to know somebody loves you back home, man, you know, and, and when you get home, it's like a whole other world. I love it, I love it. And speaking of your wife, now your big, big song, of course, which we'll play now was Kind Woman. I think I read somewhere that you wrote that for your wife. Am I right? Absolutely. She used to come to the Whiskey A Go Go and uh, stand right in the front row, you know, and 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 actually before I wrote that song, I would sing one of Stephen's songs and, and just sit down. I think I love you, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're in love and 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 I'm writing this song. And, and yeah, Kind Woman was really the, the first song that I really wrote about her and for her. Well, that sounds like a wonderful you know, a wonderful combo to do uh, Stephen's song together with your song. Okay, that's what you got. That's that's what got her. Okay. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. All right. Now you had an, an interesting career beyond music, which we should talk a little bit about, because you became an ordained pastor. Am I correct? Yes. Uh huh. So tell us about that whole transition. Well, a transition wasn't easy. Again, if somebody would have told me I'm going to be a Christian or be a pastor of a church when I'm in the middle of rock and roll, I would have uh, told them they were crazy. And it was right at the time when I left Poco because I was certain that Poco was not going to have that career, that hit record. We had been working for six years when the Eagles released Take It Easy, you know, and and they're, they're, they're big hits and, and we're just still struggling along. So 
I, I called up David Geffen and got together with him. And he said, well, listen, Chris Hillman and J.D. Souther are wanting to do something. Why don't we just put together another Crosby, Stills, and Nash? And I'm thinking, well, that sounds good to me, but it's that easy. And then Chris Hillman decided to bring Al Perkins in the band. I said, I don't want him in the band. He said, well, why? It's because he's got this little fish sticker on his guitar that says Jesus is Lord. And I, I thought that that was going to stop us. That little sticker on his guitar was going to stop us from becoming, you know, okay, we're going to follow in the footsteps of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know, and become, you know, household names again, uh, or household names. But that's, Al led me to the Lord. And the next thing I know, man, um, I'm, I'm, you know, reading my Bible and things are happening. My life is falling apart. If you want to know the truth about it, my wife wants a divorce at that time. We'd been married for seven years and she wants a divorce. And so there's, I mean, there's just so much of it to try to weave and put together right now. But Al's the one that led me to, to faith, saving faith in Christ. During that, during that, he got in the band. He he joined the band. Souther Hillman Pure, great guitar player, great guy, and uh, but me, I didn't want him in the band at the time. And isn't that strange? <laughs> so the fish led you to a new profession. That's what you're saying. Yeah, there you go, man. And I just came back from fishing yesterday, and it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so did you give up your music career completely, or were you kind of doing things in parallel? You know, for about ten years, I, I did give it up. I really, I stepped back and my whole focus was on uh, a little church back here in Boulder called Calvary Chapel, which moved to Broomfield a few years after, um, you know, we, we'd be, we'd started the church in, in, in Boulder. And um, I kind of stepped away from music. I really thought music was not going to be a part of my life anymore. And then through circumstances, I had a guy, um, you know, ask if, if, if I had any songs for a, what we would call in the Christian community a worship album. And I said, yeah, man, I got some songs. And we started playing them. And there was like a whole album, not just for, a, for one album. But then, you know, a friend of mine, Kenny Weisberg, who was promoting concerts at Humphreys by the Bay in San Diego, said, hey, come on out and do a concert with me. I said, man, I haven't played for 10 years. What do you he said? I'll get you the great con. I'll get you the right the right show. And it was opening up for Stephen Stills. So that got me after 10 years later, you know, it got me back into just starting to play music again. And and then it just kind of weaved. I must tell you that a lot of my dear friends in at Calvary Chapel who are very successful pastors, they always encouraged me to keep the music going. But I just kind of set it aside as we were focusing on the church here in, in Colorado. And then later on, you know, development, then things did go where I would, you know, be back and forth a little bit. So I'm just curious, when you first became a pastor, did your congregation know who they were dealing with there? Did they know about your, your career? Some did and some didn't. And some people would come later on in time, you know, and just to check out this guy, man, that they had heard on records and what's he doing these days, you know? And so, I mean, people that would just come through town and visit, but yes, and but some of the congregation obviously did know and, and others didn't and some it didn't even matter, you know? Your sermons, did they bring up your Buffalo Springfield albums and ask you to autograph them or something? <laughs> I've had a few people do that over the years too. <laughs> I think that's great. All right, so what's happening now for you, Richie? Tell us. Well, there's a lot going on. Um, 
I just came back from Nashville last week. We had uh, the, the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum just uh, opened up a display that's going to be on display for uh, the next three years featuring country rock. And so I've got a, uh, along with, you know, Chris Hillman and the Dirt Band and the Dillards and just so many other people, you know, that are uh, out there. So that's happened. Uh, I just released a record that I recorded in 2019 that just got released in July called Richie Fure in the country, which I did a covers uh, of country songs that have just been real uh, sensitive to my heart. I recorded that with Val Garay, who's a wonderful producer and good friend of mine since Buffalo Springfield days. And I have a documentary that's coming out next year as well that my manager, David uh, Stone, and his partner, Denny Klein, have felt that the story is worth telling. And so they've been, we've been working on that for quite a while. COVID certainly set everything back, but it's going to come out going to come out next year. Cameron Crow has been helping us with that. So that's a big plus for us. And uh, I was Cameron's first first interview when he was just a kid. So he owes me, you know. <laughs> I like that. All right. So you've gone from being a country rock star to being a pastor. Now you're going to be a movie star. No, 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 man. <laughs> I think it's great. We have been talking here with Richie Fure, one of the great musicians of the 1960s, first with Buffalo Springfield, then with Poco, and he's gone on to do so many other things. Richie, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been such a blast to have you on and hear all these great stories. Robert, thank you so much, man. And I'm just congratulations on your success, man. Listen, vision, that's it, man. Go ahead with it. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, now we're going to listen again to that song that I played at the beginning. It's my song called Stockbridge Fanfare. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Going to Stockbridge in Western Mass, just below the Pittsfield line. Tucked in a corner just off the path, a bit like going. No changes on Main Street for years, though Alice doesn't live there anymore. And Norman's moved just a few miles away, but the Red Lion still does roar. There's hills and valleys and mountain streams. I see them.
future's harsh and the wind blows fierce. It can be quite rough at times. Till spring arrives and the day lilies bloom and summer is soon.